Welcome to Game of Books Podcast. I'm Kathy in South Dakota. And I'm Christy in South Florida. We're two newbie writers who share our love of food, wine, and mystery through interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors. And our virtual book club. And even our fun writing lessons with writing experts. Join us on today's adventure. Welcome to Corks and Conversation with Edwin Hill. Yes, Kathy, I am so excited. And I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit, but I Googled the distance between all three of us. Um, Kathy in South Dakota, I'm in South Florida, Edwin's in Boston, and we almost make an equilateral, equilateral triangle on the map. So we're all between like 1,500 to 1,700 miles apart. So nice. cool. Yeah. That is, that is Good thing we have Zoom, That's right? fabulous. <laughs> and thank goodness for Zoom. Otherwise, you wouldn't yeah. be able to do this. So and see each other, which is so nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, so before we get to talk with Edwin, let's talk about Edwin. <laughs> um, he is an Edgar and Agatha Award-nominated author of three novels, Little Comfort, The Missing Ones, and Watch Her, which I'm holding up here if you're watching us on YouTube. It is a creepy cover with good reason, just saying. It's a really cool cover. Edwin's novel has been praised by Booklist as complex, dark, sometimes downright creepy, with a profusion of deeply conflicted characters. His thrillers, Featuring Harvard librarian Hester Thursby have won him a nomination for the Sue Grafton Memorial Award and two Agatha Award nominations. He's been named a writer to watch by Mystery Scene and Publishers Weekly, both of which have lauded his ability to build compassion for his characters and the way the emotional impact of the characters is as important as the mystery. Edwin lives in Boston the northeastern part of our triangle, as Christy pointed out, <laughs> with his partner, Michael, and very importantly, his favorite reviewer, their lab, Edith Ann, who, Edwin likes to tell us, likes his first drafts enough to eat them. And I will say, I will add that Edith Ann has her own page on Instagram, which I follow. <laughs> she appreciates that. Edwin, welcome. It's so nice to talk with you today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah. So uh, let's, before we get into anything important, let's talk wine. <laughs> oh, sure. <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Edwin, you chose the Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc. I'll have it. Look at this. Yeah. That does not happen very often. We I all know. <laughs> and, and Kathy was so excited. She was like, I have it in my fridge right now. <laughs> and so we're like, you know, this could be a coincidence. But then I did a little research and I saw that not only is Kim Crawford the top selling New Zealand wine in the United States, it's also the top selling Sauvignon Blanc in the United States. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> if it's not true, then you can blame Katie Brown because she had a vinepair.com article that I read that said the 12 things you should know about Kim Crawford wine. So that's where I got it from. But if you guys take a sip. We'll, we'll taste while you read info. Cheers. 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 Okay, so it should be um, the aroma is citrus, tropical fruit, and crushed herbs. Mm -hmm. And the palate is vibrant acidity with plenty of weight and length and ripe tropical fruit flavor with passion fruit, lemon, and grapefruit. Mm -hmm. I'd just say it's easy to drink. Yes. A little too easy to drink sometimes. <laughs> that's what Kathy said the other day. She's like, that's a little too easy to drink. It is. I do and love the aroma. 
I mean, yeah. when you pick it up and to drink, you can really smell that. I think we need to go to New Zealand just to. <laughs> anyway, oh, wow. yeah, and and have it with lobster because that's what it says to pair it with. I'm oh, like, that I, you know what? I, I'm not going to say no. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Perfect. Anyway, so um, Kathy, mm-hmm. should we get involved in the questions? I think we I get my sip. <laughs> yes, that is what we're here to do. But the wine is lovely. So thank you for choosing this because it's a delight, yes, it is delightful drink. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. So the setting and the story for Watcher involves a for-profit university, Preston University in your novel, owned by the Matson family, I believe it was. And they'll accept kind of any student who will pay, right? Um, regardless of their backgrounds or whatever. Mm-hmm. I I really wasn't that familiar with for-profit universities, but when I first heard the concept, I have to admit that a um, kind of famous last name university <laughs> popped up in my mind. Um, and I was wondering where you came up with the idea. What was the inspiration behind this whole concept? Oh my goodness, it's a very long story, but I'll give you the short one. Here we version, are, we got one. And then I can give you the longer one. Okay. In, um, I worked in uh, college publishing for many years. Mm. Um, and one of our, uh, a group of our clients are for-profit universities, obviously. They use content just like any other um, university. But I was sort of fascinated by the concept of a for-profit university. And there were a lot of changes to laws um, about 10 years ago. So for-profit universities used to um, recruit people and recruit people who, who wouldn't necessarily make good students. And there, there wasn't a lot of regulation around uh, these schools. And then a lot of regulation went into place about 10 years ago, or maybe a little bit longer, don't quote me on that, um, that made it harder to do some of their, their worst practices. So a lot of the really bad ones went out of business. Um, but I'm always fascinated by this idea of looking at a, an organization that is failing and like what people do when that organization is failing. Mm. And that's particularly interesting to bring to a mystery novel because, of course, people do do bad things when they when <laughs> a lot of financial pressure. And so I thought that that would be a really interesting thing to look at. The longer story is so my first book is called Little Comfort. And when I wrote that first that first book, it was about. Um, it had, a, it had a subplot that was about a for-profit university run by a woman named Maxine Polakowski. And so when I went to start selling that book, um, I, got a, I got a lot of really great feedback from editors who were like, this is good, but there, you have too much story going on here. And so I listened to those editors. And for anyone who's a, an aspiring writer, I tell you, always listen to a good editor. <laughs> so I listened to those editors and I went into that novel and I excised one of the subplots and that was the for-profit university subplot and so what I wound up doing was just saving it in a file and then when I went to write my third book I was like you know what I'm going to revisit that story about Maxine Polakowski and so I built the whole novel around that story and what was so good is when I excised the story from my first book it made that book better because I had to expand the existing story in that book And it also made the third book, Watch Her Better, because I had to fill a whole novel with that story. So I had to really develop out the characters. Wow. That's great to know. And that is good for writers out there because all the time we hate it when we have to take something out. We're like, oh, but this was such a good story. So now we could just be like, but I'll save it for the next novel. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Never throw anything away. Right. So I um, also, and I, this... I'm new to the series, the new, I'm new to the Hester Thursby series. 
Mm-hmm. And I love her. I love <laughs> this character. Mm-hmm. I will admit, I'm, I'm, I, I had told you when we were talking earlier, I'm a little bit of a librarian, like nerd. I really just think that I could live vicariously through research librarians. I just, especially at Harvard, you know, like mm-hmm. all the resources. Um, I was wondering where you came up with a her name because mm-hmm. I can't get enough of that, and b the character herself. Sure. So Hester Thursby, for anyone who hasn't read the book, she's a research librarian at Harvard's Widener Library, which is the world's largest uh, research library. Um, it has some like something like ten million volumes. I, I can't seem to get the exact number, but it's a very large number of volumes. Um, she focuses on in on Americana, so she really likes movies, she likes TV shows, but she also likes things like circuses and world's fairs and stuff like that. So she's she's really she's got a really fun background as far as research goes. Um, so where did I come up with the name? When um, when I started my first book, Little Comfort, it was actually it, she she wasn't even in the book. It was it was oh. a it was about two other characters who are in the book. They're they're the antagonists. Their names are Sam and Gabe. And, you know, like a lot of people, my first book took a really long time to write and get published. And so um, after I'd been working on it for about a year or two, I, I, I realized that writing a story about the antagonist wasn't working for me. That works for other people, but it wasn't working for me. So I thought I needed to come up with a protagonist to sort of drive the story. And I hate to tell you, this is how my entire thought process around why, <laughs> how Hester came about is that I was writing about two guys and I was like, I don't want to write a book about three men. So I'm going to make her a woman. <laughs> that was it. I, that was like my decision process. So then I had to start adding in like other details about her character. And one of the things was her name. And so I didn't really know a lot about her at first, but I did know that she was 36 and I knew that she had a child that she was responsible for um, that wasn't hers. And so I always name characters very, very quickly. And sometimes the name sticks, sometimes they don't stick. Um, So that day I was like, well, she's a a woman with a child. So I'm going to name her Hester and I'm going to name the child uh, Pearl after the characters in um, in the Scarlet Letter. And the next day I woke up and I thought, that is so pretentious. I (laughs) instantly. And so, but I was like, I kind of like the name Hester. So I I left Hester, but I changed the little kid's name to to Kate. So now it's Hester and Kate. And Kate Mm -hmm. is a recurring character in in the whole series. Um, So now I have Hester and Kate. And for a while, when I, again, I worked on this novel for a long time. For a while, the novel was going to be more comedic. It's the the first novel. These are not comedic novels. They're, they're. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but for a while I wanted it to be a funnier mystery and Hester loves movies like I said she um she she's an Americana expert um she loves movies and in the first book she originally she loved uh, romantic comedies and Mm -hmm. so I named her Hester Thursby because the original title of that first novel was His Girl Thursby a play on His Girl Friday but when the novel wind up, wound up taking a darker turn, the title didn't work anymore, but the name stuck. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. So oh, how well. did she become a librarian? That's another, yes. like, <laughs> another like, you just got, so again, uh, you go through this whole series of, uh, you call them what ifs. You're like, what if, what if the character did, did this? What if the character did that? So when I came up with Hester as a character, I knew she had to have a job. And so I went through a bunch of different jobs. When when the novel was going to be more comedic, for a while she ran a donut shop, uh, <laughs> whatever. And then, um, the then, she gonna, then she was going to be a psychologist. 
But then I thought to myself, there are a lot of novels, there are a lot of mystery series out there already that do psychology and they do it really well. And I was like, mm, I'm probably not going to do it as well as those, those authors do. So then one day I, I lived in Somerville at the time, which for people who aren't from this area, Somerville runs right alongside Cambridge. Um, and so I was walking and I lived right near the Harvard campus. So I was walking through the Harvard, Harvard Yard one day and Widener just kind of showed up in front of me. Widener's this enormous building. It holds 10 million volumes. Um, and it's a beautiful building. And I thought, ah, librarian. You know what? Librarians, they are smart. Uh, they, they have access to information that mm -hmm. not all uh, people have. And more importantly, they know what to do with that information and they know how to ask questions. And so I thought that would be, a, I did know I wanted Hester to be an amateur sleuth. So I thought, ah, that'd be a really good um, profession to give her. Uh -huh. um, you know, and she, you know, she works in a huge library. So there, there are all sorts of opportunities for uh -huh. her and these people in, in her day-to-day -day life. Uh -huh. Love her. Well, that's perfect. And that kind of leads into the um, the question that I was going to ask. Um, you obviously, you, you've said that you've spent a lot of time working on this. How did you transition? I know you had many jobs beforehand. And so how did you transition into being a writer and being published and <laughs> you know, just, we always are fascinated by the journey. Oh, sure. I mean, so again, my first book took a long time. I'll tell you, it's, so I, I wrote another book. I wrote another book about 20 years ago. And um, I was in an MFA program at the time. I graduated. Um, I, the, uh, I, I queried agents and I got an agent for that book. And it was a big fancy agent in New York. Um, I really thought I had arrived and um, we shopped it around New York. Uh, this was around 2003 or so, and it didn't sell, and it was a total bummer. And um, I, I was like, you know what? I, I, I'm totally out of money. I've just gone through grad school, and I need to start focusing in on a something that's going to make me some money. So I actually just, I was like, I'm not going to write anymore. This is, I, I can't do this anymore. So I stopped writing for a little while, and I started focusing on my career. I got a job in college publishing, as I mentioned, and um, it was a really interesting field at the time. It was very, um, you know, I had a lot of success. And, uh, you know, I would every now and then I'd start thinking about writing and stories that I might want to tell. But I was always like, ah, you know, the ship has sailed. I'm not going to do that. So then um, I don't know if you guys remember the Clark Rockefeller case that happened. It was around, I think it was around 2008. Um, it was, it happened here in Boston, but it did become a national story. So Clark Rockefeller was this guy who pretended to be a member of the Rockefeller clan. Oh, yeah. Um, and he married a very wealthy woman. They lived on Beacon Hill. For anyone who doesn't know Boston, Beacon Hill is a very uh, uh, historical and very tony part of town. Um, so they lived on Beacon Hill. They had a child. And then um, all of a sudden, his story started to unravel. And he went on the run with his daughter. And that's when the story became a national story. And... Um, I, they caught him and it turned out that, of course, he was not a member of the Rockefeller clan. He was a German national. He had moved to the United States maybe 10 or 20 years earlier. And he had gone around the United States sort of um, impersonating people. And they connected to him after they caught him, they connected him to this, the murder of this couple in California. Um, and like any good mystery author, I saw that story and I thought, you know, that would make a really good story. And so all of a sudden <laughs> my creative juices started uh, flowing again. At the same time, I read a book by Kate Atkinson, who's an author I really admire. Um, it's called Case Histories. She writes this series called the Jackson Brody series. 
And um, I read that book and I thought that she just did. She was doing with that series exactly what I was trying to do with my original book that didn't sell, which was to write a character driven mystery novel, like character always first, plot always um, uh, dependent on character. And yeah. so I thought, well, Kate Atkinson did that. And I have this awesome story that just happened here in Boston. Surely I can write a novel. So I sat down at my computer and I wrote this scene. It was like maybe three pages long. And um, it was about this guy. I didn't even know his name. Um, he was leaving Boston because he had done something to someone. He was sitting in a bar and he was contemplating mm -hmm. leaving town. I wrote the scene and I thought, that's great. And then I kind of closed my computer. I put my computer away. And then for about two years, like I would open my computer up every now and then. I'd move a sentence around. I'd be like, that's great. And then I'd close the computer again. Um, so what I'm telling you is it was kind of a long process. But I will tell you, I did get something really lucky happened. I got a new job in 2010. And part of the new job was I negotiated a month off. Um, between my old job and my new job. So I'd worked at Houghton Mifflin and I was moving over to Macmillan. And I said to myself, you know what, it's now or never because you're not gonna have another like full month off like this. Mm -hmm. So I, I sort of did my own, for anyone who doesn't, I did my own version of NaNoWriMo, which is the national no novel. <laughs> um, it, what, NaNoWriMo usually happens, it happens in November, but yeah. I, this was October. So I just had to do it by myself, but I made myself get up every day, I made myself, make a, a you know do a word limit every day and at the end of that month I had a really terrible first draft of a novel <laughs> and I worked on it from there well that's cool. yeah they're always terrible in the beginning but oh they're terrible they're always terrible oh that you're making me feel so good because I'm I'm the, I'm on a long road still and it feels like it's been maybe too long sometimes I wonder I but know you know I I echo your love of Kate Atkinson and case studies. I remember finishing that and I just thought, I thought I could never do that. Oh, it's <laughs> just so it's such an amazing book. It's so, it's so intricate and yet so, so character driven. It's oh. just a really, and it's the whole series is really good for anyone. Yeah, so good. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's have a drink because that was an awesome story. <laughs> and Christy's telling me it's time for what we call and when the the question of the bottle. Maybe it's a kind of question that you would get towards the end of a bottle if you were sharing okay. with somebody. <laughs> Let's do it. Or, or yourself, whatever. It's a pandemic, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> no judgment here. <laughs> All right. Oh, this is a good one. Oh, okay. So if you couldn't be convicted of any one type of crime, what criminal charge would you like to be immune to? Oh my God, overeating. <laughs> not a criminal charge. <laughs> uh, oh, that's, that's such a great thing to hear right now at the end of this year. That's awesome. <laughs> but maybe we can adjust it. It's like you just won't gain weight no matter what. How's that? <laughs> that's the whole genie in the bottle thing. It's like, what could I wish for? I would have said speeding, but I think overeating is also good. Oh, I, yeah, I thought speeding right away too. I was like, yeah. that's awesome. You yeah. had such a quick gut reaction. Oh, overeating. Like, forget <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. That's all that lobster up there, right? <laughs> that's oh, awesome. Man. Okay. Okay. Right, so Christy, moving forward. Yeah. All right. So there's lots of justifying going on throughout Watch Her. Mm -hmm. Almost mm -hmm. every character goes through a point where they're turning a blind eye to something that is either criminal or morally wrong. 
which, wow, this plays right into our question in the bottle. And conflict arises either internally or between characters as to whether their justification is valid and maybe universal. So did you start out with this theme in mind or did it just kind of evolve naturally as you were writing? Because it seems like it's throughout. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I don't start out with themes. I, I usually start out with sort of a broad um, idea of where the story is going to go. So every story, every novel in the Hester Thursby series takes, has the same structure. They're all told from four points of view. Um, Hester Thursby will be one point of view, and then there'll be three other points of point of view characters. Um, and the I never know who the other three point of view characters are going to be when I start my first draft. They sort of come out of the first draft, and it's whichever character sort of speak to me. With this one, I did. This one is a little bit different because I knew Maxine because I had already written Maxine before I knew Maxine would be one of the point of view characters. Um, and the moral quandaries sort of come out of that um, come out of that writing. I will say all of my novels <laughs> are morally ambiguous. I will put it that way. Um, and there are always like the crime, uh, the, the criminal doesn't always come to justice at the end of my novels. And that that's by design. And um, I, I want people to sit with sort of the decisions that are made. I think everyone makes poor decisions in their life. Everyone makes good decisions in their life. They, you probably don't make poor decisions on the level of some of the characters in my novel. <laughs> but I want <laughs> one of the things that I always try to do with all of these novels is to think about um, redemption and think about what it means to forgive and, and what it means to, I, actually, I have to tell you, you did a very close reading, what it means to justify poor decisions um, and, and how those can reverberate throughout a life. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you make a really bad ch choice in your life and it stays with you. And that's one of the things that I really um, look to explore in this. With this book, I will tell you, I didn't know who the murderer was for a long time. I oh, changed really? Who the you totally did not? No, I didn't. I, I changed who the murderer was a lot, which is not like me. Normally, I have a, I have a good sense of who the murderer is. But in this one, and by the end... Um, I don't want to give too much away, but by the end of this book, you, you actually put it really well. No one survives this book unscathed. No. I mean, even the no. best, even the even the characters that you are really aligned with have made poor decisions at the end of this mm -hmm. book. And for mm -hmm. me, I think that's really interesting because again, everyone makes bad decisions. And 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 it's sort of how you engage with those bad decisions um, as a human being that makes you an interesting, a successful or an unsuccessful, um, uh, successful or unsuccessful with the rest of your life. Right. Wow. That's a, yeah. I mean, that's a major life lesson. I'm thinking my, my college age daughter is just outside the door. I'm like, can you come in here and listen to this? <laughs> <laughs> but so true. I mean, that's, I can't, I know I was like, cause I was doing the same thing. Like when, when I'd be like, I don't know if I'd do that. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, no, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so it was, yeah. it was throughout. Yeah. So one of the big themes in this is just this idea of mothers and daughters. Oh there are a lot of mothers and daughters in this story, uh, both uh, traditional, like traditional mothers and daughters mm -hmm. and, and sort of like found mothers and daughters. And it, it, the story revolves around sort of uh, one of the, one of the themes of the story is what does it mean to sacrifice for a child? And what, you know, like, what does that, what does that do to you as a human being? Mm -hmm. I know. And that's so funny because that was, Kathy was just about to ask you. I did. That. I I I loved that theme 
And the other thing that I loved, and I wanted to compliment you on, I mean, truly, when I finished this book, I felt one of the things I absolutely loved about it was the diversity in your characters and the family structures, just the gamut, and <laughs> the care that you showed them in all these different um, experiences. Oh, and I was you. wondering, I mean, when you depicted all these different characters, it just was so sensitive and thoughtful. And I was wondering if you were, I feel dumb saying this, but was that an intentional, like at the beginning, like, okay, I'm gonna, or would just, does that just, was that just how it happened? It was in, I mean, it was interesting. Uh, so again, uh, again, there are always four characters in these novels. They're four point of view characters. And so because we live in, in the world, the four characters have to be different. Like ever, like there are lots of, there are lots of different people in this world, right? And so um, when I started this book, I, Hester is always the same. Hester is now 39 years old um, and she is, uh, you know, she is who she is. Um, one thing that was interesting about this story is that there is a, um, there's a recurring character in the, in the series uh, named Angela White, mm. who um, she appeared in the first book, sort of two thirds of, of the way through the book. And she had, um, she didn't even have a name. Uh, there was a murder in that book and we needed a detective to come and investigate the murder. And so for a while she was just like the detective. I don't even know if she had a sex to be honest. She was like the detective <laughs> who showed up. And, um, but then I started giving her some lines and then I wrote in some scenes for her. And one of the interesting, this is one of the rewarding parts about writing a series. Um, as I was, as I was touring for that first book, like a lot of readers would tell me, oh, we really like that Angela White. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. So <laughs> Note to was, self. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's really nice to be able to respond to that. And it made perfect sense to like make her a recurring character too. So I was working on my second book at that point. I was almost done, but I was like, I'll, I'll just sort of backfill a storyline for her. So I brought her into that book as well. And she had a, a larger role in that book, but still not a major role. And so then when I was starting this book, I was like, let's try and work Angela White into this. And then as I was going through that first draft, I was like, let's make her an, a POV character because she's really, she's adding a lot to this story and she's bringing a lot to the, she's adding a lot of texture to the story. So she's an interesting character. I mean, she's a, she's a lesbian. She's married to her, um, she's married to her partner. Her partner has an ex-wife. Um, her ex-wife and her partner have a child together. So it just, you know, it adds a lot of, it adds a lot of diversity to the uh -huh. story. And, and, and I found it really interesting to explore her as a character. You know, I roughed her up too. I, I gave her some, like she made some decisions that uh, I'm not going to give too much away, no, but she made won't. some decisions that, that she'll carry with her. Um, mm -hmm. And then, um, and next I was her partner's an, name is Carrie, I believe, isn't it? Yes. Carrie is her, is her, <laughs> yes. Literally Carrie. <laughs> yep. Um, and then, so Maxine Polakowski was a character who I knew would be in this story. Um, and so she is, uh, this story centers around a fictional for-profit college called Prescott University. And Maxine Polakowski is the general manager for that school. Um, so she, she, I found her to be an interesting character too, because she, she is someone who has not had her, she has not been married, but she um, sort of has her own family. I don't wanna to give too much away about that. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it was interesting to write her character. One, I'll tell you a couple of things that I did with her to make my life easier. Is uh, so like you have to you have to sort of figure out who each of these characters are, and they have to feel authentic. And like, um, you know, I am who I am, and I'm not any of these characters. So I have to make sure that they feel authentic to you as you read them. That Maxine feels like who she who she is, and and you're not like, eh, this is some guy writing this character. <laughs> one of the thing that I this is one of the things that I did with her is I made Maxine my exact same age, um, because I I find age to be one of the hardest things to write authentically for because when you think about it like when you're a certain age you have music that you reference you have uh, current events that you that you reference and mm-hmm. so for, as i was writing maxine it made it really easy we were both born in the same year which meant that in 1990 like she was doing the same thing i was doing or a similar right. thing that i was doing and i could kind of get away with that and it helped it made my life a lot easier as far as researching her as a character then the fourth character is a, i don't want to t- talk a lot about barrett but the the fourth character is a uh, is um is a guy named barrett um and he's much much younger than i am um he's yeah. barely a, i think he's 19 in the book he might be 20 um and so that was interesting to sort of write a Gen Z character, which, uh, you know, I don't even know many Gen Z. <laughs> and so to sort of put my put myself in the, in the head of a Gen Z character was really interesting. So is there more Hester coming? Well, I'm working on, you can see right over here, actually, that's my diagram for my current book. Oh. I'm working on a standalone book right now um, that's set in the Hester Thursby world. So it's oh. in Boston. Um, uh, Angela White is actually a character in it, um, but Hester, actually Hester's making a, a little cameo appearance that I have to <laughs> editor about, but she's making a cameo appearance later in the book, but it's definitely not a Hester Thursby book. Mm. Um, and then after that, I have a third, I have a fourth Hester Thursby book planned. So there's a tiny, tiny little, and I hope it's not annoying to the reader, but there's a tiny, tiny little cliffhanger at the end of this book. And, um, the fourth book will sort of answer that question. So each of these books is set in a different, so far, the first book was set in winter. The second book was set in fall. The third book was set in spring. So this last, this fourth book will be set in uh, summer and Hester has to go down to the shore, the Massachusetts shore for, um, to visit with her mother for various reasons. Yeah. You know that I you already have me hooked. <laughs> That's a whole but I haven't story. started. I have not started that book yet. Oh um, I'm gosh. hoping to start it soon. Awesome. But we get to go back and read the other ones we haven't read, Kathy. I know. I can't wait. Because yeah. <laughs> they were both nominated for Agatha Awards. So that's pretty, pretty cool. It was awesome. Yeah. 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 Well, it's been such a joy to have you. Christy has one final question for you before we wrap up. Okay. Okay, so um, this appeases our listeners out there who are like foodies as well. So which of your characters would you like to share a meal with and what would it be? Oh, goodness. Who would I? Well, it would probably be Hester, I have to say. I mean, I think that she and I would get along. We have a lot in common. Um, And we would probably go out to a, Hester likes to drink. Um, And so we would probably, I like to, and I like to have dinner at, at a restaurant, but sitting at the bar. Um, mm-hmm. So we would probably go to a local pub, um, have drinks. Your cheers up there, right? Yeah, cheers. exactly. <laughs> so we would belly up to the bar, have some drinks, and then we'd probably just have burgers. Mm. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it yeah. would be fun. And we'd it would be a long night. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she would drink me under the table. Hester's only four foot nine and three quarter inches tall, but um, she knows how to, she knows how to tie one on. I, I like, I like that Hester's not that tall. I, I, I share some common traits with that. Yeah. And I, very, I like a small, tough woman. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Great and answer. Our listeners are going to want to know more about you and your books. Where is the best place for them to reach out to you? Oh, sure. You can just go to my website, which is edwin-hill.com. Okay. And we'll have that on our, on our links and share that with everybody. Yep. On our show notes and stuff. And and definitely go out and or go out. If you can't go out, go on the computer yeah. and buy Watch Her and I, might as well get the two preceding novels because they're really good too. And um this cover Edwin's so good. Yeah. Oh, the cover. Yeah. I love what they, uh, the publisher does the covers, but they did I a mean, great yeah. job with that. You know, it's funny. I looked at the cover a few times as I was reading it and it got more meaningful as I got through the book, which I can't say that happens that often with the cover. I yeah. think they, that I have to say my publisher does a terrific job with covers. They're uh, always yeah. beautiful. Very impressed. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. So I guess all we have left is cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you so much, you guys. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on today's adventure. Subscribe to our podcast on our website, gameofbookspodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, you can give us a five-star rating or review. You can also subscribe on YouTube, where you can watch and listen. On gameofbookspodcast.com, you can find all the information about what we talked about on this episode, and you can sign up for our newsletter or enter our fun contests and giveaways. We also post our stories and links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you there. I can guarantee you we had fun today. And we hope you did too. Cheers. Cheers.